Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the history of witchcraft. Episode 2. A century of fire. Do not fight against these harmful spells, for you do not know what God wants with them. You do not know the greater divine plan behind it all. Martin Luther Everywhere they are punishing witches, who are multiplying remarkably. Their outrages are terrible. Never before have people in Germany given themselves over to the devil so completely. They send many out of this world with their devilish arts, excite storms and wreak terrible havoc among our country folk and other Christians. Nothing seems safe from their horrid wiles and power. Peter Canisius, after the 1573 persecutions. If anyone, forgetting his Christian faith, sets up a pact with the devil, or has anything to do with him, regardless of whether he has harmed anyone by magic, he should be condemned to death by fire. The 1572 criminal constitutions in Electoral Saxony. Welcome back to the history of witchcraft. Last episode, we took a look at the Malleus Maleficarum, the handbook intended for witch hunters everywhere, written by two Dominican friars and inquisitors, Henricus Institoris and Jacobus Sprenger. It is perhaps the most well-known treatise on the topic, infamous both for its unprecedented focus on female sexuality, as well as the exhaustive descriptions of every possible situation one could face in the prosecution of witchcraft. At the time of its publication, late in the 15th century, the Malleus was unique in its combination of legalistic descriptions as well as the authority it claimed to hold on the topic. Similarly, the inquisitorial experience of its primary author, Henricus Institoris, is noteworthy for both its focus on the witchcraft menace as well as the number of witches he would claim to have personally burned. But the 30 to 40 years of his career that he dedicated to witchcraft, as well as the 200 witches he claimed to have prosecuted, pale in comparison to the events of 1560 to 1660. Coinciding with the greatest religious turmoil Christendom had seen for 500 years, witch trials erupted across the continent, unprecedented in both prevalence and severity. 
Even by the most conservative estimates, the number of executions was in the tens of thousands. That is without considering the life terms of imprisonment that followed those convicted but spared the stake, the survivors' physical injuries sustained from torture, as well as the financial and emotional toll that these trials imposed on the accused and their loved ones. This was the Century of Fire, a name that I fully admit is a tad pretentious, but I think it has a nice ring to it. It is during these years that I plan to focus the history of witchcraft on, with some asides here and there. While it would be relatively simple to just recite a load of numbers and names of places to you, it would also be incredibly dull. Instead, we will approach this topic through focusing on certain periods and places, in order to try and cover the history of witchcraft as well as possible. Today's episode will serve as an introduction to the period and the context of the early modern witch panics. We will also look at the historiography of the topic and how it has been presented by authors writing in the heyday of the trials right through to the modern day. It would be an understatement to say that the combined books and theories on this topic would fill several large bookshelves, and so I'm going to both deliberately and unintentionally miss out quite a few of the more varied texts and arguments. Finally, for this episode we will look at some of the more convincing arguments over the causes of the witch trials, why they happened where they did, why they happened when they did, and why they involved so many people. If I was to ask someone on the street what they believed was the key event of 16th century Europe, they would probably look at me funny and walk away pretty quickly. But if I was to ask someone who enjoys listening to history podcasts, say, you, yes, you handsome and intelligent individual, you would most likely point to the European Reformation. While I'm sure there is a debate to be had over whether the Reformation is the key event of the period, it is certainly up there. Generally considered to begin with the publication of Martin Luther's 95 Theses in 1517 and, and ending with the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, the Reformation led to a split in Christendom not seen since the Great Schism between the Eastern and Western Churches in 1054. And while that schism was relatively bloodless, this one was certainly not. Religious conflict was a contributing, if not central, cause of several bloody wars, not least the Eighty Years' War, the Thirty Years' War, and the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on this, I simply can't do it justice in this show without going massively off-topic, but what is important for us to know is the Reformation and the wars of religion that stemmed from it led to disease, famine, political and religious instability, and the overturning of the way of life for millions of people. All lovely things. By the time the dust settled in 1648, Europe had been roughly split in half. Generally speaking, those states on the Mediterranean remained Roman Catholic, and those on the North Sea now followed Lutheran and Reformed practices. There are some notable exceptions, such as Ireland, which remained largely Catholic, but by and large the division was geographical. Not so much in the Holy Roman Empire, however, which was the home of Martin Luther himself, and was the battleground for much of the wars of religion, and by that I mean both militarily and theologically. It is no coincidence that the bulk of witch trials were conducted in this maelstrom of conflict, but as we shall see later, it would be incorrect to lay the blame for the witch crazes wholly at the feet of the Reformation. 
I'll also be using the terms Catholic and Protestant rather generally throughout this podcast, only rarely specifying if the people or regions we're looking at are Calvinist, Lutheran, Roman Catholic, Reformed, or somewhere in between. Academic study of witchcraft has been conducted since the trials themselves, and the debate over their causes and consequences has continued ever since. As to be expected from those writing during the Wars of Religion, contemporary scholarly discussions about the existence and origins of witchcraft trials are rather heated, and varied greatly depending on which side the writer aligned with. Now, this was not simply the case of one denomination blaming the other, although this was certainly common. To some Catholic scholars, magic and sorcery was the expected progression of heresy, and these darn Protestants, one of their 95 theses and such, were the most heretical of heretics. Obviously, since they were challenging the primacy of the Pope, they were doing the devil's work, and were willingly or otherwise allowing witchcraft to take root. Naturally, Protestants did not see things the same way. For them, Catholicism was riddled with magic already, what with their superstitions and unbiblical rituals, and that with the imminent arrival of the Last Judgment, Christian societies needed to purge themselves of this sorcery, whether committed by priests or by witches. However, it is important to note that the existence of witchcraft was disputed by some authors even during the height of the trials, It is simply incorrect to believe that everyone of influence was in favour of hunting witches. This refutation and support of witchcraft trials crossed religious lines and included high-profile contemporaries. Martin Del Rio, Martin Luther, Erastus and Joseph Glanville are among the most famous defenders of the belief in witchcraft, while Cornelius Luce, Johann Weyer, Reginald Scott and Thomasius made a variety of arguments against both the existence and the danger posed by supposed witches. Some of those names may mean little to you now, and I know I just did what I promised not to do, having just recited a list of names, but fear not, let's devote some time to those writers that are most relevant to this episode. By far the most famous reformed advocate for the punishment of witches is Martin Luther himself, and so we shall start with the reformer. Luther was born in 1483 in the German region of Saxony, the eldest son of Hans and Margaret, his father being a reasonably prosperous mine operator and local councillor. Hans had ambitious plans for his family, particularly his eldest, who he sent to various schools to be educated in law. It should be said that young Martin was not a fan of this education, describing it variously as hell and purgatory, and upon attending the University of Erfurt in 1501, He called it a beer house and a whorehouse, although he still graduated in 1505 with his masters. Luther then, at his father's urging, attended law school at Erfurt, but almost immediately disliked the uncertainty that law represented and dropped out. Instead, Luther turned to philosophy and theology, and in 1508, after being ordained a priest, was recruited to teach theology at Wittenberg. From there, It was only a hop, skip and a jump, by which I mean nine years and continuous academic progression, till Martin Luther supposedly nailed his 95 theses to the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, although this account has come under scrutiny as being a tad too poetic. Nevertheless, his theses were translated from Latin into German, and by 1519 his theses had spread across Christendom, and I realise I've said theses too often now, it sounds dirty. The Reformation had now begun. 
We will examine the Reformation in greater detail, but still far less detail than it deserves later in the episode. For now, the importance for us is that Luther's personal reputation was such that by 1526 he was THE guy to listen to preach, and among the many other things Luther railed about in his sermons was witches. For Luther, witches existed, and their powers extended to harming plants, animals, and people. In 1526, a sermon at Wittenberg by Luther made five calls to burn witches within five minutes, and Luther was later to write that, quote, they do harm in manifold ways, therefore they shall be killed, end quote, and that, quote, I want to be the first to put fire to them, end quote. Luther held the same opinion of maleficium, harmful magic, as he did for so-called white magic, blessings and magical medicine, as despite the possible benefits of the latter, neither were legitimized in the Bible, and so were superstitious and sinful. However, despite his belief that witches had power over the world through the intervention of the devil, there is a case to be made that Luther was opposed to the mass execution of witches. The historian Kai Lehmann argues that, had Protestant authorities followed Luther's teachings fully after the reformer's death, mass persecutions of witches would not have happened in their territories. I know, at first it sounds bizarre. Luther sounds pretty unequivocal about the danger of witches and how much he'd love to have a bunch of mates around on the Samstag afternoon for a good burning. However, according to Lehman, Luther's theology raised a number of barriers to the mass burnings that characterised the century after his death. Partly, this was because the devil could not work without the permission of God, ergo, God had granted permission for witches to conduct their crimes. The quote attributed to Luther at the beginning of the episode illustrates part of his reasoning. God is omnipotent, and could prevent witches existing or having any power in the world at all, and yet he does not. Therefore, they are part of his divine plan. Additionally, Luther's belief in witchcraft had its limits. He believed wholeheartedly in the existence of the satanic pact, the whoredom with the devil, and the harmful nature of maleficium. However, the fourth aspect taken for granted by some advocates of the witch trials was disregarded by Luther, that of the witches' sabbat. The idea that witches flew to meet and dance with the devil and their fellow witches was, at best, a deception by the devil and Luther forbade his followers from believing in this aspect of witch belief. Lehman argues that this dismissal of the idea of a conspiracy of witches would have made it impossible for the self-perpetuating nature of the witch panics to even occur. As we shall see, the witch panics in the Century of Fire were driven by forced denunciations, those convicted of witchcraft who were tortured or otherwise coerced until they admitted the names of those who had also taken part in the witches' sabbat. These people would then be arrested and tortured into giving more names, and so the cycle continued. However, if the magistrates and officials in charge of the trials did not believe in the witches' sabbat, they would have no reason to demand further names, and the trials would end. You might be thinking, isn't this all just theoretical? Did Luther put his words into practice? Well, my inquisitive listener, we do have examples of Luther taking a hands-on approach with accused witches. Aside from a burning of four witches in Wittenberg when Luther was not in the city, there are two cases where Luther showed significant restraint towards witches. The first was a student of Luther, Valerius Klockner, who came to the reformer and confessed that he had made a pact with the devil. 
Now, if we were to take the fire and brimstone oratory of Luther at his word, he would have been tying young Valerius to a stake before you could say die heretic. However, instead of immediately rushing for the kindling, Luther explained the consequences of his act, and redeemed Valerius in the eyes of the church. Now, this was a story that Luther was fond of telling, and there are a few possible reasons for his clemency. The first is that, as a student of Luther, he might have had affection for Valerius, and naturally did not want to see him burned at the stake. Another potential reason is that, as a young man, Valerius did not appear to match what many believed a witch to be, that is, an old, isolated crone. I can't find any specific mention of this, but it is also possible that Luther did not believe him, that he sat the boy down and said, you haven't really made a demonic pact, now have you, Valerius? Because you know what would happen, don't you? Yes, you'd be burned alive. Let's get a Bible in your hand and forget all about it. The other example of Luther calling for clemency was during a witch craze in Wittenberg in 1529. Luther was in attendance this time, and he preached for calm to his parishioners, saying, I also admonish you not to believe that your misfortune and troubles are caused by witches, end quote. From all this, we certainly get the impression of a complicated man, who appears to be the most zealous of witch hunters at some points, but shows notable restraint at others. The second contemporary who wrote notable works on witchcraft is Martin del Rio, a Jesuit of Spanish descent. His life was a tumultuous one, split between Spain and the Low Countries. The del Rio family held positions of power in the Spanish administration during the early years of the Eighty Years' War, and Martin himself was the vice-chancellor of Brabant at one point. This changed after the replacement of the governor of the Spanish Netherlands led to a reorganisation of the local politics. Del Rio then sought to join the Society of Jesus, better known as the Jesuits, expressing a sincere and truthful devotion to religious life. It certainly had nothing to do with him being out of a job, oh no no. After joining the Jesuits, Del Rio would travel between Spain and the Low Countries, teaching, preaching, and writing. The publication of particular interest to us is his Disquisitionus Magicae, or the Magical Investigations, published between 1599 and 1600, which claimed in its title page to be aimed at theologians, legal experts, physicians, and scholars. While some historians consider it to merely be a recitation of the Malleus Maleficarum, it was hugely successful as an example of a counter-reformation witchcraft treatise, and was more or less the last comprehensive text on how to find, try, and convict witches. So far, the contemporaries I have covered seem to fit nicely to the stereotype of this period, that everyone believed in witches, no one doubted their power or their existence, and that they all needed to burn, unless you were a student of Luther, that is. While there were certainly many people who fully agreed with the idea of witch cults, sabbats, broomsticks, and weather magic, this was by no means the only point of view. The official church view had for centuries been that witchcraft was purely a deception and had no earthly power. Even those that believed in the power of magic were not uniformly opposed to it. White magic, as we mentioned earlier, was often used as a form of medicine and protection, while court magicians entertained and advised those in positions of power. Just like the advocates for witch prosecution, we will be devoting special attention to particular opponents of witchcraft when they appear in the narrative, but for now, we will look at one man in particular, Johann Weyer. 
Johann Weyer was a Dutch physician and occultist, born in Brabant in 1515, and was educated by the renowned polymath Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, himself a published author on the topic of witchcraft and demons. Weyer was employed by various lords and cities as a physician, and it was during this employment that he was consulted on a case of witchcraft in Arnhem in 1548. He would later write the influential treatise on the illusions of the demons and on spells and poisons, published in 1563. In this text, Weyer laments the treatment of supposed witches, and makes three main assumptions on the topic. The first is that those accused of witchcraft tended to be older women who were sick and senile, and any confession of supernatural crimes are made under the influence of these infirmities, and thus they should not be subject to the death penalty. The second point is that these illnesses are either natural in origin or caused by demons to make their victims believe in their powers. The third mocks the concept of a demonic pact itself. In this way, Vyas subscribes to the notion that women are naturally more susceptible to mental illness and deception than men, hence the much higher number of cases of female witches than male. However, Vyas' argument that confessions sprang from delusions is an important one, as it throws into question both the severity of the crimes, since the witches have only been tricked into thinking they have powers, as well as turning the accused from perpetrators to victims. Vaya also advocated the notion that the devil was more than powerful enough to make his will known on earth, without having to rely on outcasts and the mentally ill to do his bidding. Vaya also laments the double standard in regards to the higher status magicians of Europe, those who entertained and advised the nobility and magistrates. These included Johannes Trithemius, abbot of Sponheim, and the personal magician of Maximilian I, Holy Roman Emperor. Trithemius had a reputation for illusions and necromancy, and yet served the king of the Romans without any apparent risk to his person or position. Via points to these high-profile magi in Fiamis as examples of deliberate and open attempts at sorcery being permitted at the highest ranks of Christendom, and yet senile, powerless old women were being executed in their hundreds for far less. Even at the outset of the Century of Fire, there were contrary voices from every religious confession against the witch panics, and they would eventually win out, but not before thousands were put to death. This sudden and violent escalation from occasional witch hunts involving a dozen or so accused, to the hundreds and thousands of the Century of Fire, has been explained in a number of ways. It is exceedingly rare for any modern historian to attempt to explain the witch panics with a single cause, as there was no single element that was identical across Christendom. The most convincing interpretation of the origins of the witch trials can be found in a combination of causes. One aspect may have a dominant role in a persecution at a particular time and place, but using it as a yardstick for the whole topic is doomed to failure. This is a roundabout way of saying that I found the following three causes to be the most relevant for the majority of witch trials that I've seen, but that they all must be taken together as a combination of contributing factors. First is the Reformation. For a long time, historians lay the blame for the witch panics of the 16th and 17th centuries squarely at the foot of the Reformation, citing its destabilising effect on society and the tensions brought about by the wars of religion. These are almost certainly contributing factors to the epidemic of witch persecutions, 
The Reformation caused irreparable damage to the fabric of a united Christian Europe, after all. But its effects on the witch trials was far more indirect than simply Protestantism or Catholicism being particularly zealous in pursuing witches. It was the religious division itself, rather than specific sides of that division, that was the catalyst for the persecutions. The Reformation required political elites across Europe to identify with one side or another, increasing the importance of orthodoxy to their chosen denomination, and subsequently heightening the threat posed by religious dissent. By persecuting the enemy within, namely heretics and witches, local elites could confirm their position as champions of the true religion, whichever true religion they happened to follow. An interesting point proposed by Dr. Darren Aldridge is that discovering a coven of witches within your realm was, in his words, a hellish endorsement of the authority of ruling groups, end quote. If your rule was being attacked by the enemy of mankind, you must be doing something right, and by prosecuting the devil's foot soldiers, you were doing God's work. Examples of this thinking can be seen on both sides of the divide. Nicolas Remy, a Catholic demonologist who worked alongside Del Rio, explained that witches had a special hatred of pious officials, but that these virtuous individuals have nothing to fear when combating the witch, as they will, quote, always have God as his champion and defender, end quote. In Protestant Scotland, the survival of James VI in the face of a witchcraft plot was seen as a vindication of both the man himself and his religious policies. The Reformation had the effect of a renewed Christianization of the European population. This isn't to say that there was a surviving population of pagans who had somehow resisted conversion for centuries, but rather that local traditions often contained holdovers from their pagan past. The early medieval church had co-opted pre-existing pagan traditions in order to convert the population, both Roman and barbarian. These methods often involved subverting and recycling those existing beliefs and traditions that were too entrenched to easily move. The annual festivals and feasts gained a Christian flavour, while magical places had saintly histories attached to allow for their continued use. In the subsequent centuries, new beliefs and superstitions arose across Europe, some developed from these pagan holdovers, others completely new, but they were tolerated as parts of country life. No longer, not in this world of religious turmoil. Ghosts, fairies, prophetic visions, and other inexplicable events were reinterpreted to conform to the local orthodoxy, and those that could not be so reinterpreted were cast down as demonic. So here we have repeated denunciations of folk magic as diabolism, many of these denunciations leading to accusations of witchcraft. So the Reformation is one factor. Even if it was not the most dominant, the aftershocks of the Reformation continued throughout the century of fire and so surely exacerbated the other potential causes of the witch panics. However, one issue with relying on the Reformation to explain the century of fire is the tendency to allocate too much influence to the elites, whether they be secular or religious. While there are many examples of top-down persecutions, examples we will be looking at in detail, there are equally many, and sometimes more, cases of bottom-up witch panics, driven by the masses and often against the will of their overlords. Wolfgang Beringer argues that the witch hunts were less authorised actions by the elite, and far more the elite attempted to catch up with the demands and actions of their people, and in cases where they were too late, legitimising offence after the fact, to pretend they'd never lost control. The argument follows that the worst cases of witch persecutions unfolded in areas where the government was politically weak, 
and the populations could impose their will upon their masters. It is safe to say that these grassroots movements had little interest in the finer points of inquisitorial or Roman law. That would be why we see comparatively fewer witch hunts somewhere like England, which had a highly centralised legal system, and so many within the kaleidoscope of jurisdictions of the Holy Roman Empire. The idea of a weak establishment going along with the wishes of the mob is, to me at least, a believable idea, but the question then is what drove the people in these regions to such extreme measures. Beringer points to a correlation between the period of the witch trials and the deterioration of the climate, which caused many difficulties for farmers, with multiple years of vineyards and fields being frozen over or being destroyed by hailstorms, leading to starvation of the people who relied on these crops. A popular belief, long dismissed by the larger churches incorrect, was that witches could control the weather, and similarly, accusations of witchcraft often involved the harming of cattle. With these two factors in mind, it is of little surprise that we see spikes in witchcraft accusations in the aftermath of crop failure. Linked to this correlation between agricultural failure and witch persecutions, Beringer makes an interesting case for why the lands of the Holy Roman Empire held much higher numbers of trials with higher numbers of executions than elsewhere in Christendom. Central Europe had a much higher population density in this period than England, Italy or the Netherlands, but lacked cities on the scale of London or Naples. Central Europe was therefore far less urbanised, far more agrarian than the rest of Christendom, leaving it much more vulnerable to the ecological damage of the Little Ice Age, and the agricultural infrastructure within the Holy Roman Empire paled in comparison to its neighbours. Throw in several decades of sectarian war and armies tramping across the land, and you have a region where the slightest failure in crops leads to famine and disease. As if famine was not enough of a trial on its own, the early modern economy was inextricably tied to agriculture, and so on top of the starvation and pestilence, famine led to economic crises. In these financial catastrophes, the wealth of moneylenders, merchants and the nobility often increased, usually at the detriment of the poor by hoarding food and lending money at higher rates leading to societies where the ruling elite feared the lower classes, where the lower classes glared enviously at those that profited from their suffering. These factors, Beringer says, led to a hardening of legal and social codes as a way for the elites to maintain control over their disgruntled subjects. Entry into the guilds and the moneyed classes was further restricted, and there was a, quote, maniacal proliferation of laws, a trend towards absolutist rule, and a criminal justice system that applied unprecedented brutality against crimes of violence, property damage, and moral infractions." End quote. For Beringer, the witch trials of this period can be linked to this combination of unprecedented climate change, the famines and diseases that followed these disastrous weather patterns, the lower classes' fear of the prevalence of witches, and a common desire to see them punished, and the ruling classes' fear of the lower classes and their desire to placate them. Put simply, weather, hunger, and fear. Beringer concludes by stating, Never before or since have so many people been legally executed in such a grotesque manner as in the years 1560 to 1630. End quote. As an extension of Beringer's argument, the third and final point that I find personally convincing is one based on this evolution of legal and theological thought in this period, which goes conveniently hand in hand 
with the uncertainty provided by the Reformation and the social pressures exacerbated by the cooling of the climate. The particular focus of this theory are, no surprise, the laws of the Holy Roman Empire. One of the quotes read at the beginning of the episode is from the 1572 Legal Code of Saxony, which was fairly explicit in its condemnation of any type of witchcraft, regardless of whether it was Maleficium or not. This contrasts quite notably with the empire-wide law code of the Constitutio Criminalis Carolina, ratified by the Diet in 1532. Article 109 deals specifically with witchcraft, and I quote, When someone harms people or brings them trouble by witchcraft, one should punish him with death, and one should use the punishment of death by fire. When, however, someone uses witchcraft and yet does no harm with it, he should be punished otherwise, according to the custom of the case, and the judges should take counsel, as is described later regarding legal consultations. So, like the Saxon Code, the Carolina states that harmful magic is to be punished by burning, but unlike the Saxon law, the Carolina appears to be allowing for leniency in cases where witchcraft caused no harm, by making a Roman distinction between the types of magic. This might make sense when considering witchcraft as a purely secular crime, where attempting a crime can often be punished less severely than succeeding at it. But for many theologians and lawyers, witchcraft was not a secular crime at all. It was a crime against God. Whether the witch caused harm or not, or whether they truly had any power over the material world at all, they'd made a pact with the devil. Any event after this fact was irrelevant. The true crime was diabolism, of which all witches were guilty. Professor H.C. Middlefort makes the case that the development of the German witch panics had their basis in two particular elements. The first was the obsession among the ruling elite of the witches' sabbat, the diabolic pact, and the witches' intercourse with the devil. The second was the equally gradual alteration of provincial laws within the empire to allow far greater freedom for magistrates to execute witches based solely on their relationship with the devil. The Carolina was, in its own way, self-defeating. Even by attempting to be somewhat rational in its approach to witchcraft, by distinguishing between harmful and harmless magic in the law, it undercut its own rationality by attempting to be thorough. The final line I quoted from Article 109 states that judges should take counsel as is described later regarding legal consultations, which seems all well and good. It is essentially telling judges that, if they come across a case that falls outside of their experience, instead of just winging it, they should seek out expert advice on the matter. Sounds very reasonable, very Roman. Except, where would these judges find the experts on witchcraft? Why, they would find them in the universities, which were brimming with theologians and lawyers who fully subscribed to the witch conspiracy. These men would come in, explain to the judge all the dangers posed by the witch, tell him of the witch's sabbat, the demonic pact, and to the nature of witch cults. If the judge was not already aware of these stereotypes, he surely would be now. Now, whether he believed them or acted on them is another matter, but this is Middleford's explanation for the dissemination of these ideas among the judiciary of the empire. The legal system of the Holy Roman Empire allowed the advocates of widespread witch cults an unparalleled degree of influence over the dispensation of justice, and it was in this way that a single case of Maleficium could rapidly become a witch panic involving dozens of executions. Middlefort compares the imperial legal system with their neighbours to the north in Scandinavia. 
When the testimony of convicted witches could not be used to implicate others, the trials remained small. But once these restrictions were removed, the trials escalated in size and severity. There was a merger of folk beliefs of witchcraft, involving everyday concerns about the danger to crops, cattle, and family members, with the panic-stricken beliefs of the elite which focused on the more esoteric concerns about the witch's sabbat, satanic pacts, devilish intercourse, and the spiritual conflict between God and Lucifer. Your common or garden peasant from a small town on the outskirts of Trier was not interested in the theological ramifications of his accusation. He just knew that he'd had an argument with an old spinster up the hill about the price of eggs, and a day later his cow got sick and his son broke his arm, and it was clearly a spell, and he and a dozen of his mates were going to the city to demand justice. Next thing you know, over 300 women are being burnt at the stake because the Archbishop was convinced that that old spinster was part of a conspiracy against God. Now obviously no grand theory will encompass every witch trial in every region across a century or more, and there are also countless other arguments and case studies that lay the bulk of the blame for the witch trials at some other door that I haven't even touched on. As we specialise and focus on particular cases, we can examine the potential causes in more detail. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.